Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Najwa, postdoctoral scholar in the Society of Fellows at Boston University and your host today. I'm joined by Dr. Mariam Koshani, who is a filmmaker, anthropologist, as well as associate professor of gender and women's studies and Asian American studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Today, we'll be discussing her new book, Medina by the Bay, Scenes of Muslim Study and Survival, published with Duke University Press in September 2023. Medina by the Bay uses ethnographic and filmic methods to trace Islam as it historically and contemporarily emerges from the particularities of the San Francisco Bay Area and its multiracial Muslim communities. Using ethnocinematic vignettes, Khashani scenically travels with Islam in the Bay as it lives on indigenous lands, moves with Black Muslim migrations from the South, crosses California with Muslim immigrants, builds formal and informal Muslim institutions, and finally, as it is historically surveilled, gentrified, or survived to this day. In the Bay, Islam is at once a global religious tradition, embodied, migrated, and inherited through local and trans-historical Muslim kinships. Islam is an epistemological archive studied within schools, mosques, prisons, and community organizations. And Islam is a liberation theology, informing political proxies from Black power to anti-war movements. Medina Baidabe argues that Islam is a way of knowing and being, a tradition that is studied and struggled against U.S. colonial, carceral, and capitalist enclosures. Mariam, thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Um, so to jump right in, this uh, is a book that I would call timely in any moment, um, but particularly useful company to think with in this moment, uh, as we record this episode in January 2024. Um, over three months um, and, and also over seven decades uh, into the Israeli state's genocidal campaign in Palestine. Um, active massacres as well as slow killings are also ongoing um, in Congo, Sudan, Kashmir, um, Afghanistan, and, and too many more places. Teaching and learning are, are transformed under conditions of violence um, and mourning and, and for much of the global south these are forever conditions of course um your book's use of the framework study and survival which you relate to study and struggle uh, a praxis central to histories of communal and abolitionist forms of popular education uh, is an especially urgent model to reflect with um, in these times so I, I understand you come to this model of, of study and struggle uh, as a scholar filmmaker and organizer so may i begin by asking you to introduce yourself the work you do, and, and what brought you to Medina by the Bay? Yeah, thank you, Najwa. Yeah, so I come to Medina by the Bay having been born there, um, born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, in San Francisco, and then um, I attended college at UC Berkeley. Um, and throughout my college years and a little bit before that, I was super involved in a number of organizations, um, doing a lot of cultural work to support a really vibrant youth-led social justice movement in the Bay Area. At the time, we were organizing for juvenile justice uh, against police brutality, and this is the 1990s, um, and affirmative action on campus, as well as on behalf of political prisoners like Mumia Abu-Jamal and others. Um, and 
I decided to study filmmaking. I'd come from a music background, um, was very involved in hip hop culture and filmmaking seemed like a way for me to combine all my interests of social justice and politics, music, um, and also just sort of big philosophical and spiritual questions about how to be in the world and how to transform it and make it a better place for everyone. Um, and that's also how I came to this project of Medina by the Bay. Um, I was finishing, jumping forward, I was finishing a my master's film, Best in the West, um, which was my first feature-length documentary um, about my father, my uncle, and their friends and their migration to the United States and the Bay Area specifically in the 1960s and 70s from Iran. And the film traces their early years of sort of becoming, getting to know the United States, being in the countercultures or amidst the countercultures of the Bay Area of that time, um, as well as telling a parallel story of U.S. and Iranian oil relations throughout the uh, 20th century. Um, and... I was very much a student of the 1960s and 70s um, as, as a sort of cultural worker and organizer. In the 1990s, we were really blessed to have elders from the Black Panther Party and other movements like the American Indian Movement, um, the Chicano Movement, Asian American Studies movements, like around to teach us. And so I'm very much a student. Um, and I very much benefited from that political legacy. And so I was like, when I started to ask more questions about my own family's history in the Bay Area, I was really struck that they were there at that moment. And so I was really interested in like, what was it like for immigrants to come into that landscape, that cultural, social landscape? And, and how did they participate or not participate in what else was happening um, in the Bay Area at that time? Um, and so I was finishing that film at the same time that I was looking for a new film. And I happened to come across a New York Times article about Zaytuna Institute. Um, which was becoming, they were trying a seminary program at that time. And in the article, one of the students compares uh, one of the scholars there, Imam Zaid Shakur, to Malcolm X. And I was super intrigued by this uh, comparison. Um, and, you know, this was post 9-11 sort of the early days, well, not early days, because it was continuous from prior, but Islamophobia and anti-Muslim racism was rampant, um, as well as a kind of incitement to discourse about Islam and Muslims. Um, and reading about Zaytuna, I was really struck by their particularity, the real relevance um, for what it meant to be Muslim in the United States in this moment, and the kinds of study, right, that they were doing there that was really applying Islam to a specific um, U.S. context. And I felt like, oh, this would make a great film subject. More people need to know about this place. At the same time, I was also really thinking through what kinds of politics and study did we need in this moment, um, especially learning more about the limits 
and the possibilities of like the leftist political movements and the legacies that I was a part of, like what was missing, what was needed in this moment. And then, um, and it seemed like thinking with Islam could be a really exciting prospect, right? Um, and so I went back to school. <laughs> I wanted to give this subject um, the, you know, the knowledge and background and like de depth of study it deserved. And I'd already been studying Arabic and I and I'd already been, you know, thinking about what it meant to be Muslim in this moment and studying more Islam. And I ended up going back to school for a PhD in anthropology because it made the most sense in terms of being able to continue my filmmaking. And so I did that. Um, by the time I went back into the field to do my field work in filmmaking, the seminary that Zaytuna had piloted became a Muslim liberal arts college. And so then that became the primary site of my research for my dissertation. But then when it came time to writing this book, Medina by the Bay, it really expanded to think about the entire Bay Area as this Medina. Um, and so the story of the college becomes one part of a much larger story. Thank you so much uh, for that rich background and, and for sharing a bit of yourself with us. Um, um, and a bit of yourself one can actually find in in the in the text. Um, uh, and before we delve into some of um, these themes that you brought up, including your own skills as a filmmaker emerging in in this project, um, let's build a bit about uh, of the book's uh, architecture for folks. Uh, for audiences who haven't read it yet or aren't familiar with Islam uh, in the U.S., it, it'd be useful to begin with the histories and stakes of Islam in Northern California. So in this book, the Bay is a microcosm for, for U.S. settler empire, racial capitalism, and a global Islam. Uh, it's also a unique assemblage of Muslims and Islamic knowledges, which you trace in migrations. You say, quote, up from the south, across the Pacific, and through the counterculture uh, in the San Francisco area. So from your research, will you give us a brief historical sense of Islam as in and of the Bay? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's such a rich and diverse history that I was really excited to learn about. Um, so if I was to take it chronologically, uh, probably the first Muslims in the Bay Area were, the first recorded history of Muslims in the Bay Area is from the early 1900s, um, when Muslims as well as Sikhs and Hindus from the Punjab province of British India began arriving throughout the West Coast. Um, in California, Washington, Oregon, um, and also Canada. And um, Karen Leonard records like a wonderful anecdote of, of a Punjabi selling tamales and popcorn in the mission in this time. Um, a lot of them went on to the central imperial valleys to be um, farm workers. Uh, the, 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 the landscapes really reminded them of the Punjab. Um, and so the first mosque that we know of that was established was in 1947 in Sacramento. Um, and also part of that, like British Indian history is anti-colonialism. Um, the Gadar Party started, um, was established in an office of it was established in San Francisco 
um, in the 1910s. Um, and they were a multi-denominational atheist, uh, leftist, um, anti-colonial movement against the British um, empire in the Indian subcontinent. Um, and so that is also like a rich sort of part of this history. Um, and then, you know, as we move forward in time, we also have Arabs from different um, areas coming to Northern California um, from all different backgrounds, ranging from farm workers to students and um, and we see that especially in the 1950s and 60s onward, especially after the 1965 Immigration Act. Um, so that's part of the across the Pacific narrative. Um, and of course, as well as Iranians, West Asians and, and folks also from the Caribbean start coming. Um, and then uh, up from the South is a story about the great migration of African-Americans to Northern California. Um, so post-Civil War, gold rush, um, early, mid 20th century, but primarily in the mid 20th century around World War II is when um, the migration of African-Americans from the South is largest. Um, and in that history, we first see Islam through the nation of Islam. Um, and actually a lot of the written record came courtesy of the FBI. Um, and so there's FBI records on the nation of Islam. Um, one of the earliest I found was a woman in 1951 looking for the Nation of Islam classes. Um, and a number of temples were established in Oakland and in San Francisco, but there were also people in East Palo Alto, Richmond, elsewhere, um, who were very interested in the nation's teachings. Um, and, you know, and to go back to your question about study, struggle and survival, this was a really important part of that, right? Um, we have narratives of Malcolm X teaching classes in West Oakland at this time. And West Oakland of that time um, around 7th Street was super vibrant with lots of different storefront churches, the temple, um, all sorts of like um, um, Black organizations like the NAACP, um, as well as the Pullman Porters organization. So this was a very vibrant period in West Oakland, but there was also a thriving Black community in San Francisco as well. Um, and also, so there were also throughout the 50s, 70s, 80s, going throughout the late 20th century, a lot of uh, African-Americans also joined Islam not through the Nation of Islam. Um, there were a number of Ahmadis who moved to the Bay Area, um, Muslims from the Darul Islam movement that started on the East Coast in the 1960s were also a part of the Bay Area Muslim landscape. Um, there was just a lot happening. Um, and then the counterculture is actually also begins in the early 20th century. We have um, Morshid Rabia Martin, who starts a Khanka, a follower of Anayat Khan in around like 1920. And then we also have like the 1960s and 70s counterculture movement, the hippie movement in which a lot of young white people were looking for spiritual alternatives to mainstream American culture. 
And so there was a lot of reading about Buddhism, but also Sufism and Islam um, and other sort of esoteric traditions. And so that was also a really important part of what makes Medina by the Bay. A lot of these folks went on to become um, followers of uh, Ian Dallas, um, moving to England, moving to Morocco and Spain. Um, there was just a lot of things happening. And so the period that I, I focus on in the book, um, these later periods is where a lot of these things come together. Um, and then also later how, how these initial impulses move apart as well. Amazing. Well, thank you for building um, that history for us. Um, so continuing to add to a, a sense of the book's structure, um, let's move to the title, which also acts um, as a methodology. Uh, you call Medina by the Bay, quote, a conceptual frame, social geography, and infrastructure of feeling, um, citing there from Ruth Wilson Gilmore. So can you break this down for us, Medina, as not just a, a place, but a concept and a relation? Yeah, of course. Um, and I have to say that the title Medina by the Bay came from one of the students at Zaytuna College. Um, during one of the last history classes of the first year, she talks about Zaytuna as their Medina, the students' Medina, as a place where they can sort of engage in deep study to figure out who they were as individuals, as a community, as Muslims, um, to then go out into the world, right, and, and make the kinds of change that they wanted to do. Um, and then later through my research, I also found out that um, another community in o Oakland, um, in, around the Sabakun movement, had also thought of the area around their mosque um, in East Oakland as the new Medina, right? And imagining a Muslim community embedded in the neighborhood, but that also sort of circulated around the mosque with schools and businesses and housing and things like that. Um, so this concept of Medina by the Bay had a lot of different origin points, um, but then it also made a lot more sense in terms of relating it to the historical Medina, right? As a place of refuge, a place of migration where Muslims had to contend with pre-existing communities there and enter into you know, relations with them and contracts with them towards you know, a collective future together oriented sort of around different identities and communities, right? Um, so this seemed like a really fruitful concept to bring into the study. Um, and also thinking about it across a longer history as well as an infrastructure, right? So these are early histories that I narrated um, are also embedded in the landscape, right? That the actual place of the Bay Area, um, it's natural features, it's built up features. So it's like natural and public-private infrastructures all impacted what kinds of Islam would emerge from there, but also that the kinds of Islam that emerged from there also impacted the infrastructure itself, right? And so that this is a relationship between place and people. Um, and I really wanted to draw that out as well and have a really 
geographically specific story to tell, because I do think that the Bay Area, as I mentioned in the book, is both vanguard and anomaly in relationship to the rest of the United States. Um, and I really wanted to draw the particularities out while also giving people space to make those relationships across multiple geographies as well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I find really rich the way um, the, the way you talk about sort of grounded relationalities, which you trace um, or you cite from an indigenous studies scholar, Jody Bird. Um, so thinking about Islam through grounded relations, as you say, with um, uh, with other knowledge traditions moved to or rooted in the Bay, like um, uh, like indigenous traditions, like the black radical tradition. Um, uh, there, there's so much scholarly critique on um, or uh, and organizing work that addresses Muslims' political commitments um, and the Ummah itself in transnational frameworks, and um, and that's obviously certainly important and and, and necessary. But research like yours compels us um, to think about proximity or our various proximities um, as also sites of necessary uh, interrelation, tension, uh, and and accountability. So I find that really useful to think with. Um, so relatedly, uh, you tell us uh, that this book uh, is about Muslim knowledge and ways uh, of knowing contingently formed through a localized set of social, spiritual, and political relations. And then within these contexts, you map Muslim models of, uh, again, study and survival across formal and informal sites of Islamic knowledge in the Bay um, within and against condi conditions of uh, anti-Muslim racism, state securitization, um, and liberal secularism. And then ultimately, you argue that certain forms of Muslim knowledge survive under such conditions, uh, others don't, uh, which conveys uh, one of the starkest stakes of the book. Uh, so can you say more about this idea, how, how Muslim ways of knowing act as a trace of Muslim survivals? Yeah, I mean, so the book is really interested in all forms of Muslim study, right? And so while the project started at uh, Zaytuna College with a very formal, you know, classroom setting. I also wanted to expand this to the perhaps less formal sites of Muslim study that ranged from mosques um, to living rooms to sort of third spaces, as well as the study people are constantly doing as they're moving through the Bay, right? Listening to recordings in the car or on their phones and things like that. Um, and this mode of study really speaks to one, I think there's a particularity with Islam in terms of the level of study needed to like be a good Muslim, right? Um, and, and the importance and significance of seeking knowledge, right? That we seek knowledge as far as China, right? And I take that to mean that we seek knowledge that is useful wherever we find it. Right. And so for me, that's also gave me license to really bring sort of Islamic studies together with ethnic studies, indigenous studies and things like that. Right. To think together. I went as far as a proverbial China. Right. To critical studies and thinking. Um, but I think one of the things that was important to me was like this process that especially for people who were either converting to Islam or reawakening, right? Or having a kind of um, a renaissance in what it meant to be Muslim and how to think about Islamic knowledge, right? And Islamic practice and relationship. Um, and so 
the kinds of like dedicated forms of informal study that I talk about um, was really compelling. And then also makes me think about like what forms of knowledge uh, dissemination production do we need to be doing right now in these moments um, where there is so much misknowledge, right, and misinformation. Um, and so, like, for example, I tell in the book a story of the Islamic Studies School, and I'm really excited because one of the founders of that school is now doing further research on it. Um, and in a way, and a, this also goes back to like the impossibility of this project in terms of documenting every movement that went through Bay Area, um, the Bay Area, and then also like every important figure or individual or activist or organizer or teacher, right? And so I talk about the scenes in the book of these different sites as portals, right? And as an infrastructure themselves to sort of think through the larger questions of the book. Um, and so like one example is the Islamic study school where it was like every weekend there were a series of classes on different things from Sira to Quran to Hadith to Wudu, right? Um, and people would drive hours as far as San Diego every weekend to be a part of this community. The thirst for Islamic knowledge was that deep that people really made this the center of their lives. Like their weekday was just the in-between time till they could get to the weekend classes, right? Where they were, that was where they were really living, right? Um, and I think when you think about that in both pre 9-11 and post 9-11, like histories, there's something, there's something so striking about it, right? Especially in a time where I feel like how we talk about knowledge in a larger US society is so diminished, right? Um, and sort of the attacks on the universities and the public school systems. Um, thinking about the ethical and political stakes of knowledge um, become really central to the book. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> you did. Thank you so much. Um, I, and it, I guess going off this idea of, of misknowledge, um, uh, I guess particularly about Islam in, in the U.S., and then maybe we can also delve into a few of the the book's uh, really intriguing and rich characters. Um, so several of the primary characters enacting study and struggle in this book are Muslim women, um, from teachers and community pillars um, like Hajar Rashida to to young students negotiating gendered spacey, spaces and and intimacies within Islamic institutions. So you provide several um, productive and I think teachable examples of, of how we might conceptualize gender as a set of contingent relations um, and, and also experimentations within Islamic institutions and practices rather than you know, like stringent mores. So may I invite you to elaborate on some of these contingencies and experiments in your re research, um, which are also important for thinking multiple, multiply about gender and, and uh, feminist critique? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think this question of contingencies is a really important one, and it goes to your prior question as well. So like one of the main arguments of the book is that the forms of Islam that we see, that survive, that flourish, that grow and, and exert influence, right? Um, the types of Islam that do that 
they have a certain contingencies in place, right? That that the the question of which forms of Islam emerge and flourish versus diminish is completely contingent. Um, there's a certain element of it that is spiritual force, right? Just the power of Islamic knowledge and tradition and practice. Um, but there's also parts of it that we don't necessarily account for, right? What forms of geopolitics um, imp impact what forms of Islam survive? Like, does it make a difference that Pro and the FBI and the CIA participate in what forms of Islam are, you know, promoted? Who gets invited to the White House? Who does not? Who receives public funding and private funding and who does not, right? Um, so I think those are some of the things that I bring out in the book to demonstrate that the sort of materiality of like Muslim institutions, right? And, and Islamic infrastructures of knowledge. Um, and with that go, um, gender and race are really, and class are really important aspects of that, right? Um, that Islam itself offers us really important critiques in terms of like how we understand a feminist politics, for example. Um, but also that the body that one embodies in these spaces will impact how one receives knowledge, right? And then how one produces knowledge, right? Um, so I give the example in the book of like the Zaytuna classroom where students were not arranged according to gender necessarily, right? But this was actually something that they proactively had to enact, right? To not replicate a kind of mosque arrangement in the classroom. And the students and the teachers were really intentional about that, that this was a place of equal access, right, to knowledge. Um, and I think that's one of its ongoing like really important interventions into our landscape. At the same time, like when students prayed in the library, and this is the first two years of the college before they established a musala that was separate from the library, um, that when an informal sort of class happened after a prayer, the, the gender division and, and spatialization maintained itself, right? That the female students were further back from the teacher because the teacher was usually a male teacher, right? Um, and similarly, like I would go to Juma across different spaces um, in the Bay Area. And like one really prominent one that I remember was in the UC Berkeley gym. And if you were sitting in the women's section, you could not hear a word of the chutbah, like the echoes of the gym were just so, it was just so impossible. And it made me think like, oh, you know, when, when, you know, men complain about the women talking too much in, in their section, it might be because they can't actually hear what's going on. Right. And they were like, well, we're going to make the most of this time. Right. Um, and it could also just be like, can you hear? What are they saying, right? Um, and so I think the actual geography of Muslim study becomes really important at this really intimate scale, right? Um, there were also aspects that I think were really surprising for like people who've read the book um, in terms of when um, Habib Omar comes to visit from Yemen. Um, and so, and he, you know, and he brings his 
traditions with him and his students bring the traditions and practices of the Hadramaut with them when they travel through the Bay Area. Um, and so I speak a little bit to my encounters in these spaces, both with him and with his students, right? Um, and being really struck by, especially in this moment where, you know, we have Muslim scholars who, you know, are called celebrity scholars, right? There's a lot of Muslim knowledge happening on online, right, digitally or in these spaces like of ISNA and RIS and these retreats and things like that. The What I learned from Muslim women scholars was the significance and importance of the kind of intimacy of the Islamic tradition. tradition in terms of the transmission of knowledge, right? That the transmission of knowledge isn't just about information being dispelled, but it's also about an ethical relationship between student and teacher and a kind of proximate relationship, right? The fact that I learned more from some teachers, not in the classroom, but just by observing what they did, like which teachers went out of their way to clean the school, right? or order food for the students when they noticed they were hungry um, or, you know, the ways they greeted the students, right? And so the, the female students, as Aituna talked about this in terms of like, we're not able to hug our teachers and things like that. And some of them didn't want any part of that, right? But the others had such, um, felt such affection for their teachers um, in ways that really speak to the relations of power, right, in these spaces that, you know, you can also think about in in so-called secular um, educational spaces. Like, what is the relationship, the sort of power relationship, but also the ethical relationship in forms of knowledge transmission? Um, so these are some of the things that I talk about. Um, I also talk about how my camera noor um, in sort of the prophetic tradition of naming things, um, which I learned from Haroon, who was the audio visual coordinator at Zaytuna, one of my most important teachers at the school. Um, my camera noor was able to sort of traverse these, you know, gendered spaces. Um, and that also that there was an importance of gendered space that people valued that space, right? But that also that that space enabled and disabled forms of relationality, right? I tell a account in the book too of the male students forgetting that part of the of study, right? That you do study with others, right? And that how um, one of the teachers had to build that into the infrastructure through Juma muffins, right? Like that they come together on Fridays just to be with one another. Right, that that is also that the rights and responsibilities we have to each other, right, and how they relate to our rights and responsibilities in terms of seeking knowledge. Um, so this was really important, and I think one thing I'd want to add to that is that one of the most important lessons I learned, and I think that the students, both at Zaytuna and in informal spaces, learned. Hopefully, um, it's one of the most difficult. lessons to embody is this lesson of humility, right? That as Imam Said says, knowledge arrogates, right? It makes you arrogant. And so one of the most important lessons that we learn is once 
is when you start embarking on this path of seeking knowledge that remaining humble is one of the hardest but most important things um, that one needs to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> um, so I, I want to talk a little bit more uh, about um, Noor, who you just introduced, um, and, and just generally the way in which you use filmic strategies to think through and sometimes trespass these um, uh, material and spatial conditions of Islam. So, um, I, so, I mean, just to start generally, this is a methods-rich text, um, and, and it is very uh, also self-reflective about what it means to do um, ethnographic work on Muslims, um, what it means to be a surveyor and analyst of U.S. Muslim peoples and worlds when that kind of work um, watching and scrutinizing Muslims uh, is a state and social project of policing, uh, particularly though not exclusively under the contemporary war on terror. Um, so it's important that you're, you're not disguising this tension, right? You're really lingering with it, deliberating it through the use of um, ethnocinematic research and, and through the visual itself. So will you discuss the role of audiovisuality, uh, cinema, um, and, and curation to Medina by the Bay? Yeah, so one of the uh, sort of writing styles, devices that I use in the book is ethnocinematic montage. Um, and so this is a bit of a critique on the traditional ethnographic vignette, right? Um, because the vignette really authorizes um, the, the ethnographer, right, as expert, as being there, right? Um, and I wanted to play with that a little bit because I was uncomfortable with that position, right? Um, but I also recognized the significance of my position as observer and participant, right? Um, and so I write my so-called ethnographic vignettes as scenes, as montages of different characters. I set the tone, I fade in, I fade out, I describe the scene, I describe the characters, I give them dialogue, but usually the dialogue is things they actually said. Um, but I'm also including accounts and scenes of things I wasn't witness to, right? Things that I was told about, um, stories that happened centuries before or decades before as a vision, right? So, um, and this was also a way for me to tell, tell the story of what was, what I actually observed, right? Um, that the way that figures were made present um, from the past, the way places were made present um, was really important and, and ethnic, Ethnocinematic montage enabled me to combine these places and people and times together to tell, like to give and evoke some sense of what was happening in Medina by the Bay, right? And also Medina by the Bay's relationships to other places, right? Um, whether it's a, a classroom and a vision that is conveyed in Syria in the 1980s or a visit to Hajj Malik al-Shabazz's grave, right, in 2010 or 2011, right? So that all of these things mattered um, just as much as any other scene um, that was, that I'm speaking about. Um, so that was one part of it. But I think also from the very beginning, I had to engage with what it meant to again, participate in an incitement of discourse around Muslims and Islam, 
right? How had Muslims been represented? How did I want to participate in that representation? How did I want to participate in this kind of surveillance of Muslims or not participate in it? And how I was going to negotiate that, right? Um, and so that also became a part of how I thought about what it meant to think ethnocinematically, right? Um, and to also convey some of like, when you see a scene being written, you also know that I am directing that scene or writing that scene. And so there are things that are missing from that scene, right? But that scene also provides you a portal, right? Into something we wouldn't have otherwise seen. Like I wanted to tell the story of how um, Ibrahim Perez joined the Nation of Islam as a indigenous Latinx person, right? Um, and so I wasn't there in the 1950s when he was working at a cannery in West Oakland, but I could tell that story and juxtapose it with the story of Haja Rashida joining the Black Panther Party in the 1960s and sitting and putting together the newspaper, right? Um, and another story of another brother um, sitting in UC Berkeley's lounge and being sold a Nation of Islam newspaper and him deciding to join the Nation of Islam in the 60s instead of the Black Panther Party, right? Like that the that being able to put these scenes together also enabled me to give us a glimpse into that past um, and also demonstrate that these things were happening simultaneously. Um, at the same time, I also use the montage as a way to talk about things that are kind of impossible to show in film in some ways, or they are, but you know, you lose something in that conveyance, right? So um, in the chapter on surveillance, the counterinsurgencies, uh, I talk about, there's one scene where you, sh where I show somebody or I talk about somebody in a prison cell, right? And so how do I convey the years that someone is in a prison cell and the sense of time and temporality? Um, and so I, I, I describe it as an ongoing montage that lasts many years, right? Um, or a, a, a scroll of FBI files that would take a very long time to get through, right? That one wouldn't see in a movie theater or in a museum, but that I could write about in the book and kind of envision. Um, it's to, to somehow convey the sort of impossible task of what it means to convey incarceration, right? There's a lot of films that try to do that um, and some do it really, really well. But I wanted to sort of think with that, right? The, the, in, the possibilities and the impossibilities of what you could do in text and what you could do in image, but then also the ethical dimensions of this too, um, to follow Audra Simpson, um, sort of what was, what, what was a form of ethnographic refusal in terms of what I would write about, what I would show and what I wouldn't show, knowing how, how narratives of Muslims and Islam are received in a larger landscape, right? Um, what does it mean to give my teachers and interlocutors um, some opacity, right? And then they enable them to, to share what they wanted to share on their terms. Right. Um, and so that's what the film I made that goes kind of with the book intertextually um, does. Right? It, it takes 
what I observed in terms of the importance of texts and reading to the Islamic tradition and transposes that into a structural film where the students and scholars and staff of Zaytuna chose texts that had meaning to them and recite or perform them for the camera, for Noor and I, um, in a place and time of their choosing. Um, and so the film isn't a like easy primer in terms of this is what Muslims do, this is what they believe, this is what they say. Rather, it is entering a kind of temporality of study, right, um, and deep thought. And you get what you allow yourself to, like, receive um, from watching the film. Thank you. Um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, but I think about visual culture. And I, I think it, it, it'd be useful for audiences who are also thinking with uh, uh, the visual or with media or teaching with it that this, this text um, uh, is, um, is, is really productive, particularly how you're using film and the scenic as, as formal strategies within anthropology um, because they draw deliberate attention to the work of mediation or many mediations uh, in ethnographic representation as um, opposed to you know, the colonial trope of the naturalist aesthetic of ethnographic, um, of the ethnographic gaze, and uh, as opposed to, as you just described, the kind of um, so-called authority of the academic researcher. Um, uh, so the, uh, there's a lot here. Um, so in um, uh, so let's move on to. I mean, we're thinking about multiple methods. Let's also think about sort of the multiple disciplines that you've engaged you've engaged here and that you've referenced um, uh, a few times already. So in addition to juxtaposing the kind of social scientific uh, and creative methods, this book is also in conversation um, with uh, many kinds of disciplines. Um, you begin though the, the the book with a very resonant critique that U U.S. academia generally and anthropology particularly. Uh, don't take seriously Islam as a canon for modern ways of knowing, being, and everyday practice. Uh, or they claim that some scholars take it more seriously than their subjects do. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I certainly see parallels, or, or at least um, uh, reticence with engaging lived, lived, lived Islams in other traditions of critical theory, uh, like ethnic studies, where, where um, I, I do most of my living. <laughs> uh, albeit, I, I think that the tensions are, are, are very different in each discipline. So will you discuss this a bit and then introduce some of the um, disciplinary interventions you're making uh, in anthropology, but also Islamic studies, ethnic studies, Black studies, um, and elsewhere? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I will say, I think the ethnocinematic is perhaps my like largest intervention in anthropology. And of course, like the anthropology of Islam is such a rich field. And I think the place where some of the most exciting anthropology had been coming from um, in the time where I was a student um, and ongoing. Um, and I think one of the things that I try to convey in the book is to take Islam as a, you know, as Assad puts it, as a discursive tradition very, very seriously, right? That it has, you know, it has everything we need, right? From a Muslim perspective. And I think it, I think it does. It offers us a way to organize ourselves as a society, um, to organize ourselves as individuals, as family units, and what, however you want to think about that. Um, if, only we mobilize it, right? If only we study it and mobilize it. And so in some ways I'm speaking both to Muslims and non-Muslims to take Islam seriously, 
right? Um, and so, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that it's very easy, especially like in Islam, um, in ethnic studies and American studies, and even in anthropology to take Muslims seriously as victims, right? And as people that we will combine with other marginalized populations. Um, it's harder to take Muslims seriously as thinkers and strategists and cr critics, right? As, some, as people who have something to offer the world from a 1,400-year-old tradition, right, that has survived, um, that continues to produce people who have memorized the entirety of the Quran, right? Like, in some ways, it is a real miracle, but it also, also speaks to the power of Islam as an infrastructure, right? Um, and so I talk a little bit about the coloniality that has entered into Islam, right? Drawing from um, other decolonial theories and theologies, right? And I want Muslims to take seriously, like what has coloniality, what has the idea and the concept of race and the concept of gender done to like what we think Islam is and what we think Islam has to say and how we order ourselves in our lives, right? Um, and so what what does the tradition actually offer us in terms of theories of abolition, theories of feminism, theories of economy, right? Um, the work I've been doing most recently is really think, thinking seriously about zakat and sadaqa and sort of an Islamic, um, what Islam has to say about how we organize ourselves, especially in a moment of like colonial racial capitalism, right? What does Islam have to offer us to critique and build ourselves out of racial capitalism, right? Um, and so I feel like the book, and I hope the book offers some tools for people to think about these questions, right? Um, what does it mean to take spirituality, right? And religion seriously, right? To take it seriously as something that has caused extreme harm in our societies, right? But that also offers something to people when they turn to it. Right. Um, what was missing, perhaps, from uh, our tradition, our leftist traditions, right, when spirituality and religion were put to the wayside, right, and were thought as holdovers, right, um, that we no longer needed with some kind of enlightenment, right? Um, how do we critique that without? reinforcing certain power dynamics, right? Um, and forms of policing that we know can be harmful. Um, so I think this is, I hope, one of the interventions and the thing that I hope people take away from the book, right? Um, what, what can be learned if we take Islamic epistemologies, ways of knowing, ways of being seriously in the way that thankfully, I think we're increasingly taking indigenous epistemologies more seriously, right? Black feminist epistemologies more seriously. Um, I think we have a lot to learn and we have a lot to offer um, because I, and I know that I have benefited deeply from taking seriously black feminist and indigenous traditions um, and scholarship and theory and theologies, right? 
And so that has informed my own readings of Islam, but then my own study of Islam has informed how I then go back to those theories and theologies. Um, and I think that's an important conversation I would like more people to have. I agree. And, and, and thank you um, for modeling that conversation for us in this book. Um, uh, so now I, I'm, I, this is a, a big question, so I've, I've cruelly left it till the end. <laughs> um, a large, a large chunk of your research takes place at Zaytuna College, which, which uh, is a contentious institution among Muslims today. Um, so for those unfamiliar, just a few of the important in criticisms include a, a sense that uh, Zaytuna's function is in reproducing a kind of politically quietist generation of Muslim Americans. Uh, we've seen some examples of Zaytuna faculty alignments with U.S. right-wing projects against anti-racist, feminist, and queer movements. Uh, and then there's um, one of its faculty leaders, Hamza Youssef, who has worked hand-in-hand -hand with the Bush and Trump administrations while replicating white supremacist discourses, which is something you, uh, you interrogate in the book. Um, uh, at a, a you know at a recent international Islamic conference in Canada, Yusuf suggested that Palestinians should suffer in silence, and uh, and many in his Muslim audience very rightfully booed and disrupted the speech. And that moment reminded me of one of your final discussions in the book, where you distinguish between the epistemologies of the oppressor and the oppressed in contemporary uh, Islamic interpretive traditions. Now, having, having said that, your research is also largely sitting with Zaytuna students who are negotiating their own relationships um, to the institution and with their teachers, and you show some of these tensions. Um, so, so Zaytuna uh, um, is a, um, like an interesting place to grapple with, but the contentions and corruptions that emerge when institutionalizing Islamic knowledge within the U.S. higher education complex, which, which itself is entrenched within state work, and its policing, military, and and uh, carceral apparatuses, um, I, I, as well as its culture wars. So, I'm I'm interested in how you um, conclude your book in Zaytuna with a conversation about harm within knowledge transmission. So, I invite you to say more, um, and and maybe we can end where you end by uh, by asking you to reflect through your research on practicing accountability within education spaces. Um, and through Islamic epistems? Mm -hmm. Yes, hard question, <laughs> complicated question, which is also why it took me so long to write this book, mm -hmm. um, because I was really contending with how to situate Zaytuna College in a larger history and geography as a way to offer that there are many paths the school and other institutions and communities can follow. There were other impulses that motivated people to study that really informed which forms of Islam and which Muslims will survive, right? The coming years and decades, um, the environmental degradation we're facing as humanity and our relatives in amongst the flora and the fauna, right? And so who we are to be stewards of in the Islamic tradition. Um, and yeah, and that trust that Allah has given to us in terms of the responsibilities that we have on this planet <laughs> um, and to each other and to ourselves. Um, yeah, I was contending with all of this as I was writing and finishing this book, um, how to honor the knowledge that I received from the teachers um, 
but how to also account for potential harm anyone may have done um, to, to anybody who's reading the book, right? Um, and how do I think about that? And what is my responsibility? Um, you know, someone asked me before, you know, especially in terms of the ethics of ethnographic writing, right, and the relationship that an anthropologist has to their interlocutors, like part of this is that we do not do harm, right, to our interlocutors. So what do you do when your interlocutor is doing harm, right? Like what is what is our responsibility? Um, and I think this is where like my work um, in Believers Bailout and Abolitionist Collective has really helped me think about this, right, in terms of a transformative justice framework informed by Islam, right, informed by, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, like thinking about how he handled harm in the community, how accountability was really important, much more so than punishment, right? Um, and so, you know, one of the books that I reference uh, that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf translated and wrote an introduction to was um, the, the supplication of the oppressed, right? The, um, the prayer of the oppressed. And, and in that, he cites a number of hadith, right? In terms of like, it's very clear what we do in terms of the oppressed, in terms of like helping the oppressed, right? But what are we supposed to do with the oppressor? Uh, we are supposed to stop that oppression, right? Um, and so, for example, in the Palestinian case, right, how do we stop Israelis from engaging in oppression, right, and Zionists from engaging in oppression is that we stop their oppression, right? We're trying to maintain their humanity in that, right? Saving Palestinian lives saves their lives, right? Um and so in some ways to suffer in silence might be great for your own like afterlife, right? But what, what does that mean in terms of our responsibility to stop oppression, right? Aren't we responsible to save all our souls, right? Um, and so for me, that, that becomes really important. Right. And so I think one of the things and I think this goes back to my point about humility, too, is that I honor the lessons that I learned. Right. I learned so much from Sheikh Kamza, right, and the other scholars at Saytuna that I will take with me to the grave. Right. Important lessons. Um, but I also have to and this is something I learned from the students who are also contending with their own feelings right now about where they see Zaytuna as an institution going, um, that they are also contending with how to distinguish the knowledge, the good knowledge that they received from particular individuals, right? And Zaytuna College is not one individual. It is a group of people who have dedicated so much of their lives, so much of their hard-earned wealth, right? Um, so many of their hours, so much of their own, um, potential futures, right? The first students who entered Zaytuna went to Zaytuna as an un unaccredited institution, right? And they graduated before it was accredited. So a lot of them had a lot of challenges in pursuing further knowledge because of that, right? They made that sacrifice, one, because they knew 
attending Zaytuna College would benefit them spiritually and ethically as people, as well as intellectually, right? Um, but again, it's like, how do we hold institutions accountable, especially in a time when so much of our community is suffering, right, and struggling? And so one of the larger, other larger questions of the book, too, is like, how do we create knowledge that um, is from the perspective of the oppressed, the poor? Um, and how does that then inform the kinds of knowledge we then produce and transmit, right? How do we create an epistemology from that perspective, right? Um, and so that last chapter contends with um, Imam, Imam Zaid teaching Benz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth um, as part of the second half of an Islamic history class, like post-1940, uh, post-1492. Um, and there's a difference of opinion at the school about whether this text should be taught or not. And of course, Imam Zaid teaches the text with his critiques of Fanon's writings intact, right? And I talk a little bit about what the the student response to that text is. Um, but that text offers us really important lessons. And we also offer that text important interpretation, right, from a Muslim epistemology. Um, and yeah, and I think this question, especially now of, of how we take accountability for the harm that we do to each other to, and to ourselves is a really important one, but then also how do we move forward um, towards repair, towards the transformation of the conditions that enabled that harm in the first place. Um, and I think that's where I'd like to see our community move towards. Thank you. Um, thank you for, for that response. And and yeah, the, the text really did um, uh, cause me to conflict, uh, confront some of my own kinds of um, uh, uh, I don't know, assumptions or uh, assumptions about Zaytuna. So um, before we conclude, because um, we are at, at the end of time here, uh, you did mention the way in which you're organizing work, particularly with Believers Bailout informs um, uh, your research and your thinking. Um, would you like to uh, introduce our listeners to Believers Bailout and maybe let us know how we can contribute to this work? Yeah, so Believers Bailout started in 2018 um, for Muslim scholar activists, um, women activists, uh, started the organization as a way to think about um, Muslims' contributions to sort of the ongoing abolitionist struggle, right? And thinking, taking seriously the different categories of zakat that um, we have received through the Quran. Um, and the fact that more often than not, we neglect the category of those in bondage and those who are captive. Um, and so taking that, taking the abolitionist tradition from, you know, the seventh century onwards, um, Believers Bailout enacts that by collecting zakat to free Muslims from pretrial incarceration, as well as immigration incarceration. So when you're arrested, you're given a bail amount. If you can pay the bail, you are released to fight your case from outside. Um, if you can't afford to pay the bail, then you are incarcerated throughout the length of your case. And this can 
take years, right? And so you are in you are incarcerated without having been found guilty of a crime. You're incarcerated because you were poor, right? And of course, the category of the poor and the needy, um, people will often get theirs at cat too, but we do not tend to give it as much to the traveler and to those who are in bondage. So um, Believers Bailout is organized to do that, right? And through, and we also provide post-release support. And so you can go to our website, believersbailout.org um, to help to learn more about the organization and also to support our work in collecting and redistributing zakat and sadaka to our community. Um, but I think also what I've, I have learned to put into practice some of the things I talk about in terms of harm and transformative justice through my work in the organization, right? Um, I have been tested and I have been critiqued and, but I have also received like just such wealth um, from my work with my wonderful crew in the collective. Um, and it really informed how I was approaching the harm that happened in the course of my research um, in terms of like, how do we move forward as a community, right? In a way that repairs our relations and that transforms um, our possibilities so that we're not enacting further forms of coloniality in our communities, whether it is in forms of racism or sexism, but, but also um, policing, right, of ourselves and our, each other. Um, yeah, how do we make us, how do we make Muslim spaces and especially spaces of learning welcoming and warm and, and spaces of possibility, right? That's a 